0: Shut up
1: and sit down. Welcome to the Edu Third Space podcast, where we address the important questions. What is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? Hello listeners, welcome back to Edu Third Space. I want to start by apologizing for my absence. I recognize it's been about a month and a half since I Posted the last episode, Um, I am in the final stages of getting my PhD, the biggest final stage of dissertation writing, and I needed to take a month to just solely focus on that so that I could send it to my committee, move on to the next step. So that's what I was working on during my absence. Today's episode is a continuation of the theme of the last episode, which is the who gets to decide question. Um, the Edu Third Space aims to address, so in the last episode with Colleen Palicki, we talked about local decision-making regarding schooling. Today, I am speaking with Jeanette Duderman, who co-founded Long Island Opt-Out, so that is a parent group who advocates around reducing at a minimum the number of standardized tests that are taken in the state of New York. And there are similar efforts going on in other states. So I speak to her to get more at the parent side of decision making. So the episode with Colleen Palicki talked about parents serving on boards. That was more of an official um, decision making body. Whereas in this episode, we talk more about Kind of grassroots efforts that parents engage in to try to influence not just their local school but um, state policy around K through 12 education. In this episode, we also get into at the end of the episode a little bit about kind of outside influence on K through 12 public schooling, and that might be a topic that we explore again in the future. So I didn't really go too deep into the issue with Jeanette, but perhaps um, another guest, we will get into that issue a little bit more. I should also let you know that right now the podcast part of the website is not up because I'm updating the images that you click on to get to the episode. So it'll re-emerge soon enough. but if you check it within the next three days after this episode is posted, It might not be available to you. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast and leave a review. Hi, Jeanette. Hi. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Um, So for our listeners Today we're going to be talking about, I was just mentioning before I hit record that one of my interests is in local decision-making, which you go all the way down to the parent. And what we're going to talk about today is a group that you're involved in. Um, we can specifically talk about that group and obviously deviate from it. Um, Long Island Opt Out, which you can tell us a little bit about, but first can you just kind of give me a trajectory of your involvement in education, the system of education or informal um, or all of it up to this point? Sure.
0: Um, uh, I'm a product of educators. So my father was a physics teacher at a local school, um, local district on Long Island. Um, My sister is a school psychologist. Other sister is a special ed um, teacher I've had, I have aunts and uncles that are teachers, so I kind of come from the education world, um, and when I, um, I almost became an educator myself, then I switched gears and then kind of came back into it. Um, I had worked uh, as a teacher's assistant down in Maryland um, when I came back to Long Island after a number of years living in other states. I worked for um, a school called EAC it was a like an alternative high school uh, where public school kids would get sent and and taught at the school so I did that for a number of years and uh, then was working as a parent (laughs) and uh, I had my own business but I was but in, in parenting is where my real passion for advocacy came in Um, as my own kids started their schooling and when they were young and then when Common Core and testing all came into the grade my my older son was in third grade when all of it came in to the third grade so he was the year that was probably the most impacted by all this Um, and watching you know what was happening and recognizing that something was severely wrong and Asking a lot of questions from educators that I am in contact with and that I do have in my own family I started to get a picture of, of just what the problem was and I honestly could not believe what had You know what had slipped through without most parents having any idea what was happening and what was going on and Then to hear that teachers couldn't talk about it um, was mm-hmm. the most you know the 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 biggest red flag for me was when teachers kind of felt like they had to whisper about it when i asked um and i just thought that this is this something so so wrong with that um when this is like this like dirty little secret that no one can discuss of how bad things are getting right now so um just i guess part of my personality and and (laughs) not liking what I was seeing with my kids, I I decided to do something about it. Um, So I figured I'd start raising some awareness. Um, I recognized that uh, one of the methods that you could push back against all this is opting out um, of high stakes testing of those three through eight tests. Once I realized the mechanism and learned about the mechanism of how you can actually do that, you know part of at first it was like all right I'm i'm gonna just do this for my kid and then hearing other parents talking about the same problems they were seeing with their own kids and how miserable their kids were and and the school anxieties that were becoming um, an epidemic i just realized i couldn't in good conscience like you know have my own kids you know the way i looked at it like protected from this and then listen to other parents you know in the same boat so um So then I started to advocate and and get people um, aware of what what the situation was and what they can do about it. And it kind of just snowballed from there and sort of took over my life because it uh, turned into almost a full-time job um, for a number of years. So that's kind of where I'm still at. Uh, I have a statewide organization as well. And, you know, through both of these organizations, we just work really hard at being watchdogs. Um, A lot of our work involves just not letting it get worse. And then a lot of work goes into trying to fix what's wrong. Um, And I just can't imagine without all these parent advocates all over New York state, I I just don't know how bad, I I can only imagine how bad it would be right now if we hadn't been doing the work we've been doing for all these years.
1: Okay, so you have the, there's the group Long Island Opt Out, and then what is the statewide group? New York
0: State Allies for Public Education is our statewide organization, and that came about um, through working with, when I started Long Island Opt Out, uh, there was a handful of other advocates and and, um, activists that were also starting their own groups in various parts of New York State, and we were all loosely coordinated and talking to each other and we became friends and and we all decided to meet um, back in uh, 2013 Uh, we decided to meet up pick pick the place upstate and uh, since we're a grassroots no money organization we met at a local Wegmans which is a grocery store upstate New York and it has like cafes in it so we went and met there and decided that it would be much better if we could have like a clearinghouse um, of information uh, consolidated into one organization. And then we would be the satellites of that and, and kind of work it through there. So each of us would cover our own regions and we would, um, we would then coordinate our actions together. So if I was doing something on Long Island, I- coordinate with albany area or buffalo area or westchester and it then it becomes much more powerful when you have a coordinated action that goes across the entire state which i think is truly what makes new york uh unique um, as opposed to other states that also have opt-out movements but maybe uh don't have the coordination so the you know as far as what they're able to accomplish m- might be a little different uh whereas we've you know had some huge success in New York, I think, because of that structure.
1: Okay, interesting. So when you are coordinating efforts, can you give me some examples of what are the advocacy efforts, and like, what do you hope to accomplish, or what is your ask? Sure. So, um, you know, we, we have, I think one of the
0: sort of one of the, our, our strengths in this movement is that we have, you know, we start off with our goals of to eliminate high stakes testing or reduce, you know, at the very minimum, reduce high, t- high stakes testing in New York. Um, this, of course, we all know is a uh, federal issue as well. This isn't just a New York issue. Although, you know, we f- do focus on New York in the sense that um, we can, first of all, influence our local New York leaders a lot more easily than, than, a, than the federal government. Um, plus, even within the federal guidelines of three through eight assessments, which again, this comes from the Fed. So they, they say you have to test three through eight. What they don't say is, is how long the tests have to be, what type of test they have to be. There is a lot of leeway there. And although we do have to work on eliminating that, that criteria, three through eight tests, Within the state, then, you can also uh, advocate for project-based assessments, um, an assessment that is hugely insignificant so that it does not disrupt the classroom and doesn't take over the whole classroom. What New York did, which many states did not do, is we tied teacher evaluations to the testing, and we not only tied teacher evaluations, but we ramped that up to half of their evaluations. So it became um, and still is a significant portion of their evaluation, which you cannot say, oh, teachers, you know, don't, don't teach to the test. Don't consider the test to be the main, you know, your main factor of what you want to do in the classroom. You can't do that. And, and also keep it as a, as the biggest piece of their evaluation. Um, So that, that, That is why we have always advocated to eliminate those high stakes testing. But as our organization has grown, we've also um, sort of morphed into and added some things onto the plate. We always did advocate for uh, privacy. Um, So the the student privacy is is a huge piece of what we talk about. And now with all this distance learning and all this technology coming into the classrooms, it is absolutely, it's scary and it's crucial that parents are aware of, of uh, issues with privacy, student privacy, and where that their student information is being housed and where it's going. Um, we, one of our early successes is helping um, uh, Class Size Matters, which is run by Lainey mm-hmm. Hampson, and she also works with us. Uh, we uh, coordinated efforts with them to try to get rid of Inbloom, which we were successful. It is a billion dollar company that was taken down completely. Um, but there's still the same type of, of companies out there. When, one vacu- you know, when there's a vacuum of one, another one sweeps in because it's a huge, huge, huge business. Um, we're up against a tremendous amount of money and they're not going to just walk away. Um,
1: so was Inbloom... So- how they were storing data?
0: Yes. Okay. Yep. It was a data storage and in bloom had all sorts of, uh, you know, where they, they, all these companies, you know, they'll say, yes, we'll protect your data. And they say, but if anything happens, it's not our fault. And, you know, we, we put it in the, you know, we put it in their uh, our contracts. And, and so it, it then, and they can also purple uh, laws were changed so that they could sell to third party vendors. If the vendor is, is a, you know quote education service, um, but you know this this just loosened so many of the restrictions uh, to make it so that pretty much you know data is just sold all over the place now, and we all know about the breaches you know there's continual breaches from from all all different data sources um, you know one of the things with with the privacy is you know we work with districts in in trying to ensure that they understand what they're doing when they sign up for certain services. You know, there's there's things that, that house, for instance, um, when schools sign up for, they use a program to sign up for sports. Now, within those sports signups, you have medical records being uploaded. You have all sorts of, and in some of them, if you read the fine print, it will say that they are not responsible if there's breaches or that they may share this with a a third party or they, you know, there's all sorts of fine language that people don't read and the districts don't always read. So we try to um, sort of help parents to navigate some of those things.
1: Okay, and you mentioned project-based assessments. So do you typically advocate that teachers are more in charge of assessments or schools or districts um, like, how do you see that? I mean, you mentioned that federal government obviously the policy comes from there, so that's a whole other ballgame. But from what you're able to control or influence or attempt to influence, how do you see project-based assessments playing out? Okay, so so the biggest problem with
0: the assessments we have now that are not project-based, that are multiple choice, um, they're uh, what they do is not just the day of the test. So everyone says, oh well, you know. You know yes we opt out and okay so it's good no it's not it doesn't mean that everything's fine as long as you opt out of the test because it still needs to be um the reason why we advocate for changing the tests and making the test different is because once you have a standardized test it's again it's going to be a high stakes test meaning things are attached to it whether it's school funding whether it's schools ranking Um, Whether it's, uh, you know, the teacher evaluations, whatever, if you're attaching things to that test and you're not just using it diagnostically, again, a good test should be, especially for elementary kids and middle school kids, a good test should be diagnostic, strictly diagnostic. It should be to inform what the student has learned, to give the teacher information about what they can do differently um, what is working to give parents information on how students are doing instead we have weaponized testing and that's the test that we're we're using now is tests that you know if you don't do well it's not a it's not just a diagnostic indication of what we need to work on it's now used as a weapon and punishments are attached Uh, so that's that's what has happened. And these tests, when they're multiple choice, you know, you'll see if you look at a lot of the curriculum now, the curriculum material in elementary school, it's all in multiple choice format because everything is geared towards getting kids prepared to understand how to take a test like that. So instead of it just being, okay, well, we'll, you know, when, when, when we were in, um, when I was in elementary school, Um, You know the test we didn't even know when it was coming. We didn't even know, you know, we I don't remember it I have no memory of it. It wasn't a significant part of our education Um, And they truly did just use it to see where everyone's at now The entire year is geared towards how do we prepare these kids to take this kind of test? They have in kindergarten. They already start to teach kids how to bubble in Um, the circles, Uh, they're already doing testing in kindergarten, they're doing testing in first grade, second grade. And again, it's all gearing them towards this type of way, uh, this this way of learning that involves standardized testing. Uh, And it's so perverse to to what, you know, young children, the way they should be learning. Um, So project-based learning definitely is more geared towards, you know, the way students learn, the way they learn best, um, it's a collaborative effort. It's not, uh, it's not siloed like, okay, this skill, we're going to multiple choice test this skill. Project-based learning is more of a development of skills in general. It's soft skills. It involves, um, you know, working with other students, uh, communication. It ta- you know, they, they learn how to also cross-discipline. So they'll pull in you know, I visited a, um, a consortium schools, and I know I'm bouncing around a little bit. <laughs> the, the consortium schools in New York City, um, which they have exemptions from standardized testing. And what they do is teach with project-based learning. And they do project-based assessments. And I visited, and they were showing me how, you know, they pick a topic. And each discipline, each different subject, all sort of overlaps and gears towards the same thing so the kids go into all these different classes and they're kind of learning you know like the science version of you know they were talking about the sugar trade and in science you're learning about how it affects the body and by you know for biology and what it's doing and then chemistry is the chemical makeup of sugar and social studies with the sugar trade and how that so so everything's kind of overlapping and there's no fear of Oh my God, you know, we don't, you know, we can only spend a little time because we got to get to the next subject because the test is coming. Um, So it's, you know, when you use project based and unshackle yourself from that, you know, the drab multiple choice, um, kids are learning how to just take tests rather than learning how to learn. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because when I talk about this issue, people are like, oh, you don't think kids should be assessed and teachers should be held accountable. You know, I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. You articulated really well how it shapes the entire environment. Um, And sure, teachers shouldn't be teaching to the test. But as you mentioned, especially in a state like New York, that is the incentive. That is what they are incentivized to do. And so they are humans. They're going to, you know, shape an environment around um, the structures that are in place. So I'm glad you, you know, kind of got into this, how it really shapes learning. Yeah.
0: When the system's set up that way, you just can't possibly set the system up that way and then criticize when when it's following Mm -hmm. exactly how it was designed. You know, that is the design. So if you want, if you don't like it, then you have to change the design, which is what we're pushing for.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so who is typically involved in this movement? Like obviously parents, but do you have um, people who aren't necessarily, don't necessarily have kids in school that are involved in the movement? Yeah, we have everything from grandparents
0: to parents to teachers to um, some people that don't have children, but they work with kids uh, you know, really runs the gamut on everybody being involved in this, um, because it, it kind of does affect everybody. Uh, you know, when, and I, and I do, the teachers have been an integral part in, in working with us and, and really shedding a light. Uh, one of the things that's been hugely successful for the movement is that we have, um, around test time, we'll let teachers. Uh, teachers will write into me an anonymous story about how the testing day is going. So they'll tell me like, this is what happened in my classroom today. And the stories are heartbreaking and they're horrific. And it it just, I mean, I spend, you know, during those testing weeks, I cry a lot because I have to sit there and read all these horror stories about what is going on with these kids. And, you know, before and without sort of allowing them to do that, there there was no voice and parents had no idea that this is what actually goes on on test day that when we say these tests are harmful we're not just you know speaking fluff like i literally mean teachers will tell me that kids sit at their desk pulling their eyelashes out so this is you know this is more than just a test that you know is bothersome or a test that you know just happens to be a little long or something like that when you have a kid an 8 year old sitting from 9 in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon, that is abusive. There is no other way to put it, you know, people say, oh, you're exaggerating when you use the word abuse. I don't know what else, how else, a six hour test for an eight year old, I don't know how else you can possibly describe that. You know, there, there is just no words, you know, for how bad that is. Um, and, and, you know, again, Without the teachers being part of this movement, if, they, if, if it was just parents, it would not even remotely be as successful. And at the same time, if this all was teacher union driven, um, whereas if it was just teachers that were trying to change this, they would also be wildly unsuccessful. So really, this had to be a blended uh, movement of everybody on the same page and everybody contributing what they can. Mm-hmm.
1: And do you use these stories or other things that emerge from your work to engage with decision makers? Or do you, like, set up opportunities for people who are a part of the movement to engage with them?
0: Yeah. Um, so, you know, we actually, um, around test time is, you know, we say testing season. And because it is literally a season that starts in January and ends sometime in late spring. Like, that's how long it is. It takes up half the year. and. During testing season, we start to what we do is we also help parents to advocate. So a parent will write in and say, "You know, my district—they just told the kids that if they opt out, they're not allowed to be on their sports team." Mm-hmm. So you know, now parents might in the dist- in that district might feel like they can't do anything about it, or they or if they do, they'll have you know somebody will will uh, you know take something out on their kid or. You know, so they're, they're, they can tend to be uncomfortable to just do it. So they'll write into us and say, well, what should I do? So we will go with them step by step. And it doesn't matter where they live. I've worked with people all over the state that write to me or call me or email me. And I'll tell them, you know, okay, so here's the first thing you do. You know, and I usually tell them, try to get something in writing so that I can use it as evidence of what they're trying to do. And districts have gotten smart, you know, These uh, and, I, and this isn't all, you know, there's so many school leaders that do the right thing. But there are still um, a number of them that will will absolutely um, not do the right thing, and they've lost their moral compass, and they will try to use the situation as a punishment. Um, and so in those cases, what we will do, we have a connection with the Board of Regents. We will write directly to them. I have a great relationship with many of those uh, Regent members. Um, and if there's anybody out of state listening, our Board of Regents is... Very similar to how a school board is to a district where they're in charge of hiring superintendents, our board of regents is in charge of setting policy and hiring the state ed commissioner, uh, which we are right now in the process of looking for a new state ed commissioner. So, you know, we will send the message along of the stories that we're hearing, or a teacher might say to us, listen, my administrator is telling this to parents. So again, it's like whistleblowers. So we will take that whistleblower information. We will send it along up the chain. And usually the Board of Regents, um, if it is uh, something where where it is a clear violation of policy, they will step in. They will call the administrator. uh, They will write a letter. They'll put out a a public notice. um, When it was a couple of years ago that there was a number of these cases coming up and and after a while, and they some of them were so heartbreaking and, and awful that uh, the Board of Regents actually put out a memo um, kind of admonishing school administrators for what they were doing and said, you know, this is like unacceptable and put out a public notice. And um, so that was great because then parents had something to go back to their district and say, wait, you can't do that, see? You know, this came directly from the Board of Regents. So through our networks, parents having the information gives them the tools to be able to advocate and then they feel comfortable nobody wants to go in and fight for something that they don't really know what they're talking about so we make sure they know exactly what they're talking about they have the documents we back everything up with like okay so here in the manual here's what it says here's what you can do here's what you can't do and we give that directly to parents and then there they have that knowledge to be able to then go and, and advocate.
1: Are you familiar with other states that have similar uh, networks or groups? Yeah, there's a lot of state. Almost every state
0: has some kind of opt-out movement. Um, Like I said, you know, there's a lot of them that aren't necessarily coordinated across the entire state. Like there'll be pocket areas where there's like a, you know, an organization in one pocket area that's super, you know, charged and and really organized and does what they can do um but yeah many states have have these uh you know every state is different that's the, that's the hard part is every state has their own rules their own regulations their own you know our when we first started it was because there was a little loophole in our testing um regulations and we were able to kind of exploit that and and opt out of the test and you know once we started doing it it was like kind of too late for them to change any of that so so we continue to use that not every state has that so some states it's a lot harder some states like florida uh they tie their test scores to graduate uh, to advancement to the next grade that again puts another roadblock into trying to you know opt out or advocate or whatever so there's a lot more uh, roadblocks that have been established but slowly a lot of these organizations just like ours are you know they're they they just have to keep fighting, keep fighting, and and kind of digging away at at the situation.
1: Okay. And do you uh, communicate with any of these other groups? Um, no. You mentioned there. Obviously, each state is different. But have you learned tips from other groups? Sure. Um, and we actually because because we
0: were kind of the first uh, state to really ramp up and get very successful with the opt out movement. So I try to help other states. So I. Um, you know, every year there'll be a handful of people from other states that will call me and ask for help and I'll give them, I wrote out a, you know, a whole, um, you know, sort of manual on, on starting an organization or starting a local group and and what some tips are to do that. And I'll give them that and I'll talk to them for as long as they need to on the phone. Um, Occasionally I've gone uh, like I was in Massachusetts speaking because the the organization there asked me to come speak Um, So, you know, I'll I'll try to help other states wherever I can to try to help them to sort of duplicate what has been successful in New York
1: Okay, and is there anything that you're currently working on any advocacy efforts or
0: yeah, so Right now, we're trying to help with, well, see, what's great about when you get to this level, so we, you know, we've been doing this for quite a long time, and we have sort of earned our seat at most tables, so when there are um, official, uh, like right now, our Board of Regents is holding um, task forces on the reopening plans, mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, they've taken leaders from different organizations and from schools and from this, uh, various districts. And, you know, we were invited to be part of that. And we're sitting on almost every single uh, task force meeting day. Um, I'm going to be sitting in on Wednesday for the one for Long Island and, and uh, New York City. And again, that's that's because they now, you know, we're not just banging at the gates. You know, th- there is something to be said about standing at the gates and screaming. You know, that's, that's kind of how you start. You're you have to You have to be scrappy and you have to you know, just be willing to be, you know, screaming as loud as you can and not stop. Um, then it then it starts to switch. And once you build up enough momentum and you have enough success, and people start listening to you, uh, we've you know politics was never something I wanted to really intertwine with. And fairly quickly on, we realized that politics, there is no avoiding politics. This is education issues now are politics. Um so we had to get involved. and we had to start you know, pushing for certain people to get elected, um, you know, based on because they're the ones setting the policy in New York State, most of our, you know, horrendous education policies have been passed by Governor Cuomo. Um, And, you know, that that's something that what if we can get our assembly and, and Senate to at least take up the causes that we want and push the governor to change some of these things. And he's even backed off on a lot of these things that he was pushing. Um, he actually called me once and, and asked what, what, I, what I want him to do. Um, and again, it's because politicians recognize that we are a huge force. I mean, when you have 250,000 parents in one state out of, so it was like a, a 20% of the entire school population all working in concert and it, taking an action together, that is a huge voting block. So you know, we started getting invited to a lot of things. We I have politicians that are constantly reaching out to me, asking for an endorsement or asking for me to help them with their education platforms, or um, just wanting to have a connection, you know, with me and ask me what you know what it is that they should be advocating for and what what it is that us parents want. Um, and that's a lot. That's strictly based on numbers. If you get the numbers and you show on paper how big you you know your movement is and how many people are all doing this that allows you to then use that um to your advantage and and get some of the things that you're fighting for um, so now we do get invited to sit in on a lot of these things um, we have a direct line to a lot of policy makers so we're able to advocate not only out in front you know out in public but also behind the scenes we can we can uh, influence a lot of the policies um, And, uh, you know, that is where, that's how you you get these things to change. A lot of it's not out, you know, out in the open. A lot of it is done, you know, behind closed doors, which is um, sort of the the gross part of politics, but it is how it works. And so we, you know, do that as much as we can.
1: Okay, yeah. And what do you, so you uh, mentioned, you know, so that this podcast is not frozen in time. We'll note that we're in the COVID-19 or so that it is frozen in time, I guess. We're in the COVID-19 pandemic and schools had to close basically and ended up canceling testing and things will likely be very different this coming school year. So do you think that that helps in your arguments? Um, Things switching to online However else it will morph, um, obviously the school today is not going to look the same. So testing is going to be a little bit more difficult if they're following what they've normally done.
0: Right. So uh, this is one of the things that actually uh, lately I've been working significantly on. A lot of my time has been devoted to, you know, First of all, helping parents navigate through this distance learning nightmare. Um, but second of all, trying to figure out like, you know, where do we go now? And, um, you know, we, we like to say we had 100% opt out this year because they canceled all the tests. They canceled the three through eight exams. They canceled the regions. Um, and, you know, as much as, you know, okay, you know, big deal. Everybody canceled them. It, it, it was a big deal because once you can even get that small piece of, okay, one year. So now kids have been exempted from regents. So the regents requirements, which we are also fighting for, is to reduce the number of exit exams. New York has one of the highest number of exit exams of any, of any state, um, you know, once you see that, we can do that, and the system does not collapse. You can eliminate high stakes testing, and kids are still learning, and teachers are still teaching, and the world still is spinning on its axis without high stakes testing. Um, you know, there was just a, a Washington Post article today that that stated exactly that. That you know, you know, schools are recognizing that they don't necessarily need these assessments to function. Um, So we're working on trying to push for more exemptions. Uh, I actually just figured out kind of a, something that was in, again, we work on loopholes a lot of times and there was, you know, with the regents exemption. So it was that any kid that was signed up to take a June or August regents could be, would be exempted. Um, so now in New York state, because of all the exit exams, we have a lot of kids that are not, uh, that were not able to get a regents diploma or not in line to get a regents diploma because they have failed one or more of the regents assessments that are required. So what we realized is teach is, is that any kid that has failed a regents can say, I would like to sit for the regents again and take retake it if they have passed the regents course. So what we started telling parents to do, inform your school that you're quote, you've been tutoring them at home, preparing them because it had to, there was like a caveat in there that as long as the student is preparing, but it, there was no, you know, restrictions on how you're actually preparing for that. So as long as a student is, quote, preparing for the exam and indicates that they would like to sit for the exam, if that's the case, they are now exempt. So this could potentially open the door for thousands of students across New York to now get that regent's diploma mm-hmm. after passing all of their regent's classes and just happen to have failed the regent's assessment. Um, so that was a big deal, and it, and it actually is um, – you know, just one of the things that we're we're trying again. Parents, you know, and, and not everybody's on in our network. So of course, there's a lot of parents out there that wouldn't, still aren't going to know that, and still may not be able to take advantage of that. Uh, I actually spoke with State Ed and urged them to put it out there and and let parents know. But of course, they, they won't do that. But <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, at least uh, you know, I tried to see if we could include. But you know, so now it's just getting the word out and putting it out through all our networks, like hey. This is this is something out there that you can take advantage of and hoping that that more people do. Um, but with, you know, the upcoming assessment. So I spoke to them also about, you know, January Regents. Uh, our district is the ELA Regents in January. These kids now have missed the significant piece of, of the ELA uh, Regents um, preparation. Uh, Because the ELA regents is not attached to a specific class. It's more of a cumulative skills class, uh, skills test. Mm. So these kids are going to not, they're going to come in there with a big missing chunk. And are they going to be ready for that January? So, you know, we're likely going to see uh, at least January tests being, you know, uh, also exempted and potentially even next June. Uh, if things go the way we think they're going to go, which is going to be, um, they're looking at split schedules, uh, kids come doing half-distance learning, half-learning in school, um, the, their school is not going to look in September and in the fall like it did uh, last year, unless by some miracle they come out with some kind of uh, miracle cure uh, for the virus, and, and no longer do we have to worry. But if things keep going the way they are, the fall is not going to look look anything like um, our normal school day Uh, and we're just having to we're gonna have to prepare for that and we're gonna have to advocate for testing um, to to be halted to take that off the table and again this is like chipping away at the whole Mm -hmm. system little by little we keep chipping away and saying see you know see we can do this and maybe we should and you know project-based learning we could actually do project-based assessments you know at home or partially in home and school because it isn't a, a sit down, you know, type of test. The SATs, that's another big thing. Um, SATs being canceled and all these schools going to SAT optional, even if it's just for two years, that could end up being being the way they continue, because we already know that hundreds of colleges are SAT optional, even before this. So now to think that, you know, Week. This this whole pandemic could actually be sort of the linchpin in some of these um, high stakes testing. Is is sort of the one real bright spot in all this. Um, but as far as distance learning and using this technology, you know, this has been um, you know a real difficult thing. And and to hear you know like our governor was, oh, you know, maybe we need to rethink how we educate kids. And hey, look how great this is working. And to that I say, oh my God, you're so not in reality of what parents are going through, what the kids are going through. Um, For the majority of kids, distance learning does not work. Uh, We're just getting by, we're just managing. I call it crisis schooling. It's It's not distance learning, it's not homeschooling, it's crisis schooling. And that's something that, okay, maybe we can sustain for a very short period of time during a crisis, but it is no way. Um, should it be looked at a model to take over, you know, what traditional learning looks like.
1: Yeah, yeah, they often forget the conditions under which this is occurring, and obviously they're not in people's homes, so they can't really make any assessment about, is even, um, you know, I've talked to home educators, and they're like, this is not homeschooling, like, this is not it works for us when we do it you know we're outside the home we're going to different groups we're meeting up with other groups of kids so it's just the conversations around education are just they're not it's people who obviously don't know how this is all actually playing out in the home right right yeah and I like your mention of project-based learning because that is something that you know you could do that anywhere. So if you're going to adjust, I think that would be a way to keep kids engaged. And we warn against screen time all the time. So do you really want to, you know, really sit them down in front of a screen?
0: Right, right. These kids have to sit for, you know, my kids would sit for three hours. And then I, I had a rule that, you know, once they sit for three hours, that's it, you're done, you're not sitting any longer. Um, you know and and for these little elementary school kids was even worse you know for them to be sitting that long in front of a in front of a screen in the same chair like people are like oh come on they they sit for 6 hours at school yes but they're socializing they're moving around they're playing they're learning they're they're talking to peers they're moving you know they're going to lunch they go at home you're talking about sitting in the exact same chair at the same table for hours on end. It's just not a healthy environment for them to, them to continue. Um, and, and something I, I, you know, when we do talk about project-based learning, um, you know, that's, I get asked a lot, like, well, what, you know, what would you, so what do you want? And, you know, what I say to people is we need to really truly reimagine the way that we're teaching kids, I don't want to go back to before standardized assessments and just go back to the way it was because I don't think that was good either. I think our model of schooling. Somebody just said to me recently that um, that they had heard a, somebody talking doing a talk and they said, you know, it's the only education is the only example of where you could go to 1950 and walk into a classroom and then go into you know, 2020 and walk into a classroom and you wouldn't really notice the difference unless you looked at clothing or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're literally teaching the way we've been teaching for a hundred years. Yeah, um, and I do, instead of chalkboards. Right, mm-hmm. and I do think that model has to change. I think that we do need to start looking at alternative ways of collaboration with kids, I think we need to increase our, our recess time and time, you know, of kids learning outside has decreased dramatically. Um, kindergarten kids now spend 20 minutes at recess. That is disgusting to have a kindergarten class be outside for 20 minutes a day. That is just, there's no, no way that that is acceptable. And yet that is everywhere. And 20 minutes is a, is a good amount of time. Many schools have 10 minutes for these five-year-olds to be outside playing. Um, Kids, I'm seeing kids that just have no self-regulation anymore because they're not learning those skills. And that's where you learn those skills is out on the playground. You don't learn them sitting at a desk with a teacher monitoring their every move. You learn that during free play. You learn that running around. Kids don't necessarily have that after school anymore like they used to. So now in school is where a lot of them do have to learn those soft skills. Um, and, and that is one thing that we've, we've been really negligent, um, in, in taking away. And when, you know, we've had some things in New York that have contributed to that, which is, uh, you know, changing the way we count minutes of the school day and they didn't allow and they changed it to not allow recess time. Um, so schools said, oh, geez, you know, we have to have these minutes. And so, well, let's recess has got to go, um, and that needs to change. And that's something that we're definitely advocating for. Um, but you know, having kids learn through hands-on, having them do things where um, you know, the, the old saying, teach kids uh, you know, how they learn, not, not having kids learn the way we want to teach. Mm. It, it's you know, the opposite. You look at, we say child first. That's one of our mottos, children first. So you look at the kid and, and how does this kid learn best? And that's what you do. You don't say you're going to learn the way I'm teaching this class and this is the way, this is our structure and this is how many minutes we're doing this and that. There has to be flexibility and there really should be this whole new um, concept of, you know, having them, you know, my, my ideal classroom would be where the kids are literally doing hands-on fun activities throughout most of the day. That can all be incorporated into education. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's been um, a lot of talk about project-based learning, um, and it's gone on for a while. Um, I do think part, you know, more recently, this idea of, um, I'm like blanking on the word that I want to use, but um, like innovating in schools, the idea of innovating, and, you know, that's the original purpose of charter schools was to innovate. And then that could be brought into the public school system. Obviously, that's changed quite a bit since the original conception. But there's been discussion of innovating, changing the model, whatever. Do you actually see it happening? I guess you can hear the little bit of the cynic in me coming out. But yep, do you foresee yep. this? It is,
0: it is a, this, this school system is a massive, I, I think when I think of it, I think of like this giant metal wheel that it weighs you know many many tons and and just doesn't want it's rusty and it just doesn't want to turn and i think of what we're doing is you know greasing it and sanding it down and getting it so that it has even potential to start shifting um you know you talked about uh you know the local local advocacy and going down to the local level This is where it comes into play, Board of Ed elections. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, not every state has small districts like New York. We are, you know, we're lucky in that our Board of Eds are very small and incorporate, um, you know, only a few schools, where most states, their Board of Eds encompass the whole entire county. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have to take advantage of our system and our structure and make sure that we get people into those board of eds that do have a vision for changing things. Because you can have, uh, for instance, ComSWAG school district, I'm gonna use them as the example because what they have done has been you know, unbelievable. They have changed their entire high school to a project-based learning school. Um, and even though they're a public school, they have to give the same tests and the same you know, things jump through the same hoops as everybody else. But they had a vision. Uh, They're actually, actually, their superintendent who has recently passed away was absolutely the best person I've ever met in my life. Um, And Dr. Rella had a vision that he was totally against the high stakes testing. And he was, he knew that we needed to start doing something different. And we needed to teach kids differently. He had the courage to do it. He had a school board that backed him 100%. The teachers all got on board. Um, it was like a, a magical sort of, you know, mix of all three things, the board of ed, the teachers, the parents, and, and the superintendent. And they did. They, they changed that district and changed the, the way that they were doing things. Um, when you see consortium schools, again, they do things very out of the box. We're pushing to open up the consortium schools so that more schools can apply to become a consortium school. And that would allow them to be free of the assessments and who knows what can happen. I think we need to unshackle ourselves from the assessments to see what the possibilities even are. And we have to stop being afraid to make those changes. Uh, We have to stop being afraid to say, you know what, let's do something different. And we might say, oh, that starts with the administrators, but actually it starts with the parents. So if the parents get a Board of Ed in there, and if the parents start supporting those new ideas, Um, Our district changed the regents assessments uh, and the way that they're uh, factored into grading because my superintendent wanted to decrease the dependency on assessment scores and he wanted to de-emphasize them. So we put in a do no harm where our kids, um, their regents scores do not factor into their GPA unless it helps their GPA. If it's going to hurt their GPA, they're just on the transcript as a separate score and don't factor in. Now you know, you had to have parents support this. If the parents said, no, no, we don't want that. We want the scores all counting no matter what my kid, you know, I want my kid to care about the test. Then then that would have been difficult to do. Um, the teachers had to be on board with that. Most districts, the teachers are the ones that have blocked all of, all of that. Um, other districts have tried to do it and the teachers unions um, fight against it. And claiming that, kids won't try. Well, in our district, we've done it now for three years, and the scores have gone up. They've either stayed the same or gone up. Kids did not stop trying. They do not take it any less seriously. The kids that really always have tried hard are still going to want a good score to boost their GPA. And the kids that never really cared weren't going to care in the beginning anyway, and they're going to get the same score they always did. No kid goes into it saying, oh, well, since it's not factored into my GPA, I might as well fail it. It's still graduation requirements, it's still you know, high stakes in that, in that setting. But all it did was decrease the value and make it so that you know, the test didn't have to be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the type, kind of thing that has to happen and that takes courage. Our superintendent said, we're doing this, period. Mm-hmm. We're doing it. Um, and, and I'd love to see more of that. But like you said, this is a, a cog that, that doesn't wanna turn. Um, so it's taken, now we have, again, I'm seeing over seven years. Now I'd like to say I saw it over two years and it takes a long time, but things do start slowly shifting right now we're they're going to be hiring a new super, um, new, um, state, uh, commissioner that could, depending on who they choose, we could see massive, massive change in that direction. If they get the right person. Do I believe that they will definitely get the right person? No, I don't have full faith in that. Um, You know, a lot of times it's, they they will hire who kind of just seems like, you know, average, (laughs) you know, and somebody who doesn't make too much waves, somebody who isn't going to, you know, either way upset the apple cart, somebody who's just going to keep the apple cart just upright. We don't want the apple cart to just stay upright. I want to kick the thing over. And I want to say, let's, let's just like, you know, right now, especially with what's happening with the pandemic and with, you know, quarantine, let's, let's throw it all out the window and let's see where we, what we can get out of this. Let's let teachers actually do what we know that they've been trained to do, which is actually teach with, with this open book of, of ideas and not box them in and say, you know, here you go. Here's your script. Here's. Tests and get them all to pass this test. You know, let's 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 open this up, Uh, and that's what that's really what I'd like to see is 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 us to have the courage to to make those changes. And I have to hold hope that you know, as much as you know, there's like that little little person in my head saying, "Oh, come on, they're never gonna, you know, nobody's ever gonna change." I have to believe that this is a possibility. I have to believe that we will get there at some point or, or at least see, you know, even steps along the way would be an improvement.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I really, I mean, obviously I haven't been alive, you know, for more than I've been alive, <laughs> but it seems like this is the time if people can stop talking about reinventing schooling and start actually doing it. And yeah, sometimes I get cynical, um, but I also have not lost hope that it is possible. It's just (laughs) a really... To grind, you know, it's going to take a lot of work.
0: I can't tell you how many times in the last seven years that I've said to myself, Oh my God, I just want to start a school (laughs) because, you know, you you just kind of want to bypass all, you know, okay, fine. You guys don't want to change. Fine. Well, I'm going (laughs) to, you know, put something in and then I say, Oh, I'm nuts. I'm never going to do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, But but it does it, you know, for all of the problems with, um, charter schools. I mean, that is basically what's in what ends up happening with a lot of um, uh, charter school leaders that they are at a breaking point. They say, forget it. I'm not going to deal with this anymore. I'm just going to start my own. And then the problem is they also have to adhere to standardized testing. So it ends up looking exactly the same. And in some instances, a lot worse. Than yeah, well, I can, and we didn't even schools. touch on
0: charters. And I don't I won't go off onto, onto any tangent. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it comes to charters, uh, they are, on, uh, they are a huge piece of the, um, of what we are, fi- we have fight against privatized, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we fight against charters. Um, we fight against having charters siphoning money away. They're, they're parasitic to the public schools. They're not, like, pub um, private schools work sort of, you know, just in concert with, with the local, you know, public schools. They don't, they don't they're not a detriment to the public schools, whereas charter schools are parasitic. They, the money comes away from the public school once a charter opens up, um, and then the, the public schools get worse and worse. They, they decline because their funding is completely stripped, um, and it's an unfair advantage then for the charters because they'll cherry pick only the best students, then they'll send back the students that are, you know, that are not performing well. And now the public school has even more of a burden, less of a tax base, less money and higher burden of, of students that need help. Um, so it is a tragic and absolute tragic uh, situation that charters have proliferate peripheral. Oh, I can't say it. <laughs> I'm getting tongue tied. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, and that it 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 really has um, been a huge burden in some you know New York where we've we have a strong opposition so we're keeping them um, at bay more so than other states but you know to see what's happened in New Orleans and Philadelphia and and Detroit and some of these other places it's it's just absolutely heartbreaking and what you were saying is the original concept of charter schools was a good one it was a local uh, you know local groups local parents that that had an idea to try something different. And that was, I mean, Diane Ravitch, she supported Charters 100% when she started off back in the day, um, you know, when she worked with Bush. And, and that was the original concept. Um, and then it got grossly distorted once corporations realized there was money to be made. And now, um, charter schools are no longer uh, these community-based, you know, grassroots organizations that spring up out of a community in need. Now it's a corporation that moves in and, and just completely decimates the, the local public schools. So it's a very, um, it's unfortunate because that could have been a model. Um, but you also have schools like Jamal Bowman, who is running for Congress right now. You know, he started his own middle school in the Bronx. He, he, he did what what the former charters were supposed to be, he did that and he um, became a public school. Um, and he, you know, that, he served a need that was not being met with his students, but in a public school setting, so it wasn't siphoning money away from anybody. It wasn't detrimental to anyone else. Um, so that would certainly be things you know community school models that's another way um, where you're wrapping around services so kids are getting what they need rather than um, you know just expecting that you know certain teachers are going to suddenly change the poverty structure in the community you know that's just not a reality so um, you know there's like I said there there's things out there and people out there that have great ideas and they're they're pushing to change things um the political winds are shifting that's another really big thing that politics is now catching up you know democrats used to push hard for privatizing um, because let's face it um you know the Democrat there is nobody speaking anymore for just regular people everything's corporate owned uh, both parties are corporate owned Um, so, you know, but now for Democrats, it's starting to shift now Bernie Sanders platform and, and, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, and they took on really great, uh, platforms for, uh, education and that has shifted the narrative now. And now the Democrats realize and recognize that they can't keep holding on to this whole corporate charter push. And it's not, it's falling out of favor. It's coming out of the, uh, standardized testing. When I started this standardized testing was like all the rage and nobody really spoke against it. And now it's a dirty word. You know, you hear standardized testing. People are not on board with that really anywhere. Um, You know, when they talk, even the people that were proponents of it now, now also use the language of, you know, limiting it, you know, that it's still great, but we have to just put limits on it. They never said that before. Mm -hmm. So changing that, that, public perception of it is just in and of itself is you know absolutely amazing to see that such a dramatic shift
1: Mm -hmm. all right well we will leave it on that positive note then that (laughs) uh we are perhaps now in a time where things can um start to actually change
0: yes let's Uh, hope so
1: yeah well thank you so much for coming on you're welcome take care thanks